The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Looking at the way of Jesus, and today particularly looking at the way of vision. The way of vision, we'll look at the way of prayer and the way of power. But the way of vision, Mark chapter 1, beginning in verse 14. We're going to look at 14 through 20 and kind of look a little bit at the entire chapter, but really key in on these few verses. We read this, verse 14. Now, after John, John being John the Baptist, was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Verse 16, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And he immediately, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. I know we've prayed a few times. Let's pray one, once more and ask God's blessing on his word. Father, we thank you. We have gathered. We've gathered to worship, and we have gathered to hear your voice. We want to hear from you. We want to hear a word of encouragement, a word of challenge, ultimately a word that changes and transforms us. So Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear what you are saying to the church, the church globally, to the church here at Maranatha, to our hearts and lives. We, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Ravi Zacharias, the apologist who just went to be with Jesus, said a lot of things, but he said this. He said, when you think of it, there are really four fundamental questions of life. You've asked them, I've asked them, every thinking person eventually will ask these questions. They boil down to origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. Where do we come from? Why am I here? How do I know right from wrong? And where am I going when I die? This world has always tried to answer those questions through religion, through philosophies. In today's America, there are countless voices competing to try to answer those questions on a big level and on a small level. I mean, just pay attention to the books and conferences and seminars that are being put out there. How to have your best life now. Everything is about trying to answer these questions to give you, the individual, some kind of meaning. We see everything going on in our world around this kind of upheaval, trying to find a different way, a different answer. Listen, Proverbs says this. There is a way that seems right unto a man. It appears right, but its end is death or its end is destruction. What I want to tell you this morning, there are a lot of ways out there. There are countless ways. There are countless voices saying, go this way, do this, do that, buy this, adopt this model. And a lot of them seem to make sense. They, they, they appear right. That's what the Word of God says. There's a lot of things that, that seem to have some wisdom, but they end in destruction. Jesus said, broad is the path to destruction, narrow is the path to eternal life. There's a way that appears right, but its end is death. Listen, as Christians, 
In fact, that was one of the early names that were given to the followers of Jesus were Christians. But the very first name, does anybody know the first name that was given to those of us who say, yes, Jesus is Lord and Savior? We were called followers of the the way. That's right. Followers of the way. Why? Because we follow the one in whom said about himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for those of us who, who have heard that, who have heard his voice, and we've said, yes, you are the way. And what does that mean? It was used both literally and metaphorically. Literally, that word in Greek is hodos, and it meant a pathway. It meant a road. It meant an access point from one place to another. Metaphorically, it also spoke a, as a, a manner of living, a way of living, how to be in this world. And as believers, we'd say, yes, Jesus, you in fact declared it, and we believe it. You're the way. You are the only access point to get me from earth to heaven, to get me from my separation back into the Father's presence. There's no way, there's nothing I could ever do to get me back, to forgive my sins, to pay for what I've done wrong. Jesus, you and you alone are the way. But as believers, we also say, Jesus, you're the way in which we live. We look at your life, we listen to your teachings, we see how you navigated life, the rhythms of your life, your prayer life, your, your Sabbath, your rest, your times of solitude, how you interacted with people. We look at your way and say, I want your life, then I want to adopt your lifestyle. I must adopt your lifestyle. You are, in fact, the way. And that's what we're talking about, the way of Jesus. It's all-encompassing. And this morning, we talk about, first and foremost, the way of vision, because you have to have a vision. And Jesus is really clear. He, he spells out, he lays out really clear what his vision is, what it will look like, what it means to embrace and adopt his vision for our lives. And the vision, listen, the vision he gives is beautiful and it's compelling. When you really understand what he says, what he paints, what he clearly states, you say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. That's the vision I want for my world, for my life. Jesus says, this is what I came to do. This is what I'm doing. And I invite you to be a part of it. Proverbs also declares, without vision, people perish. If you don't have a vision for your life, you will perish. You'll, you'll kind of meander. You'll kind of try to make it up as you go. You'll kind of, as the wind blows, as you feel, without a clear sense of direction, where you are and where you are going, you'll just kind of live. But the chances are you're going to mislive. You'll come to the end of your life and you'll evaluate your life and you realize you may have accomplished a few good things, but apart from this vision, you'll realize you mislived. We all get one opportunity at this life. That's it. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to squander the opportunity that God has given. I don't want to come to the end of my life and realize I lived, but I didn't really live. I kind of existed, but I didn't really live. I mislived. I wasted this opportunity, this gift of life that God has given to me. So today, the question we're going to look at is, what's the vision? What is his vision? Vision, excuse me. What does this vision look like? And finally, how can I make his vision my vision? We'll pick up with me again. We'll look at these first verses. And Jesus begins his public ministry with a very clear and emphatic statement. In fact, the words that we read, if you've got one of the Bibles whose uh, letters are in red, the words of Jesus, you'll discover that the very first red letters in Mark's gospel are these words. In fact, Mark's gospel is the very first gospel written. And so the very first publicly written down words of the declaration that Jesus makes here and really his vision for his life and ministry and for this world. He says in verse 15, the time is fulfilled. 
The time has come. It is now. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is his vision? His vision is about the kingdom of God that has come and is coming. He says the time is fulfilled. That word time in the Greek is the word kairos. Two different words. There's a a word called chronos, which simply means the passing of time, the sequential order of time. It's time on a watch. But this word kairos means an appointed time. As believers, we would say it's a divine time. God says, Jesus says here, it's a divine time. This was the time that God mapped out for all of eternity. Why? Because the king had come. He says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. Listen, as believers, we live in this tension. And when Jesus makes this statement, he says, it is already come, and yet we know it's not yet. So we live in this time period of the already and not yet. The kingdom has come. It's at hand, it is near. Later on, Jesus would declare the kingdom of God is within you. And yet it's real easy to look around and turn on CNN and Fox News and whatever else you choose to listen to and watch. The kingdom is not here. (laughs) That is clear. You you scroll through your Twitter feed and you're like, yeah, the kingdom is not here. So we live in this time where it's, it's breaking forth, it's breaking out, it's coming in, but it is not yet. But this is the vision. The vision is as big as it can possibly get because it's a vision of a kingdom that will encompass the whole globe. That's what it, it's not one part or one sector, one thing. When he says his vision, it's the kingdom of God. It is coming. It's here and it will continue to grow and expand. It's the Kairos time. Now, for you and I, as as Americans who grew up in democracy and a republic, we don't really have much of an idea of a king and kingdom other than from history books other than whatever the tabloids tell us about who married who and who cheated on who and whatever else that went on and goes on in the English monarchy or whatever else. That's kind of our, our idea of a king and king. Not a lot of power, more figurehead sort of thing. I like what Dallas Willard, a Christian philosopher, says. I believe it's in your notes. He says this, kingdoms are about the range of effective will. Kingdoms are about the range of effective will. Essentially what that means is the king where his will was in effect, that was his kingdom, the domain of the king. And this definition I like because it's, it's quite broad. When we think about that, we realize that kingdoms really are everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's people trying to establish their kingdom. They're, they're trying to see their effective will over certain areas, corporations, people. I mean, think about Jeff Bezos, Amazon. There is the the kingdom of Amazon, and it is ever exploding. And some of you own stocks, and you're really excited about that. We see the the kingdom of Elon Musk going on. You can see the kingdom of politics, of left, of right, all these, this effective will trying to be established. But, But let's go a little bit more personal than that. I like what John Calvin said. Every man flatters himself and carries a kingdom in his own breast, meaning we all desire to be our own kings and have our own little kingdom. And you think, oh, I don't want it. That's not me. Oh, just get married. <laughs> you know, when I got married years ago, I realized, oh, she wants to be a king. I want to be a king. There's like some kingdoms in conflict here. I was 22, and I thought I had my idea. Oh, marriage is going to be great. I'm going to have all these things that I want have happen. And it was very different than I realized. And that whole call to die to self was something that needs to happen all the time. Why? Because she's got a way of doing things. I've got a way of doing things. I want my effective will done. She wants her effective will done. And we realized there's kingdoms in conflict. We look at this around the nations of the world. There's kingdoms that are in conflict. So when Jesus makes this statement about the kingdom of God is at hand, he's acknowledging that the kingdoms of this world, the systems of this world are broken. He acknowledges it's not supposed to be this way, but I've come to change it. 
He makes this declaration in a time of brokenness and injustice, just like ours. It begins there in verse 14. It says, when John, his cousin, had been arrested. Why was he arrested? Because the religious leaders turned him in because they didn't like his message. He was a threat. The political leaders at the time, Rome, kept kept the people under oppression. And so it's a time of brokenness and injustice, of unfairness, of inequality. And when Jesus makes a statement, and to his listeners, they would have loved this. The kingdom of God is at hand. They would have had visions and dreams of the times of David on the throne, the tabernacle, and then the temple when Solomon builds it, and the glory of God fills God dwelling with his people. They'd have an idea of what this kingdom was like. They would think of the prophets who foretell a time and a day when the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. It foretells the day when literally every sector of human society will flourish when there will not be this inequality, will there not be these racially divided lines, all these different, it it, it foretells this time and our hearts cry out for that. We say, yes, we want that. We long for it. Well, guess why we long for it? Because that's God's will. That's what we have been created for. And Jesus acknowledges there's these kingdoms in conflict. And by saying my kingdom has come and is coming, he's saying every other king and kingdom will be subjugated under mine. Some of us think, man, that's good news. Some of you are like kind of new, like, well, that sounds pretty harsh. Don't, don't I get a say in this? I mean, king, kingdom, sounds kind of like a dictator. It's a little threatening. I'm not sure. Listen, if it was a kingdom of self, then yeah, that would be threatening, the kingdom of man. But listen, this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the God that is revealed to us in scripture is a triune God. He's a trinity. He's father, son, and spirit. And that has huge implications. See, when the Bible says God is love, the only way that can be possible is that God existed for all eternity, not singularly, but Father, Son, and Spirit. That means for all of eternity, Father, Son, and Spirit have been loving each other, enjoying each other's fellowship, serving, preferring one another. That's what his kingdom's all about. So when he creates heaven and earth, he invites us to be part of that relationship, that community, that family. It's a kingdom where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Not the rich and mighty. Blessed are those who are merciful, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, it's a kingdom that's completely different than the kingdoms of this world. The kingdoms of this world that exert power and force and influence through might and strength. His kingdom is completely and totally upside down or really right side up. When Jesus makes this statement, listen, it's not the statement of possibility, In fact, he uses the word gospel. This is the gospel. Believe in the gospel. That word gospel is used hundreds of times in the New Testament, both in its noun and verb form. And it was a word, not originally a Christian word, but simply a word in its original form. The currency was used to speak of a a traumatic, glorious event, news that brought tremendous joy. It was, it was used in Greek society. It was used in Roman society. Uh, when, when Athens and Sparta were almost wiped out by the Persians and a great victory was brought, they literally sent, quote unquote, evangelists out to proclaim the good news. Persia's been destroyed. You will not be in slavery. You're free. And so it's a declaration of what has already happened and the results that will now affect your life. When Caesar Augustus was born, it was said, this is the gospel, the euangelion. That's the Greek word. Try to say that through your mask. I don't know. Euangelion. Good luck with that. Uh, this was the word. Good news. Word, oh, a declaration that caused extreme joy that would change not only history, but for Christians that we know all of eternity. 
That word became so synonymous with Christianity that it completely was, you know, taken over. When we heard the word gospel, good news, we know what it means. But listen, it's a declaration, not of possibility, but of arrival. When Jesus states this vision, he's not saying, this will happen if enough people buy in. If you really believe them, we can all band together and this is going to happen. No, he's saying this is happening whether you want it to or not. It's coming, but I'm inviting you in. That's, that's the vision. He says the kingdom of God is at hand and it's coming. He says, I'll let you know. Amen to that. Yeah. But he, and he invites us in. Jesus arrives and proclaims the good news. The kingdom of God is breaking in. I'm going to destroy sin, Satan, death, and hell. You can live in the world how you want, but ultimately that will lead to death. Or you can adopt my vision, the announcement that I make, the kingdom of God is advancing. That's his vision. That's the news that brings great joy. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Now, what does this vision look like? And we'll briefly kind of talk about it this morning. Because really, the entire gospel is recorded for a sneak peeks previews. When we listen to the parables and we see the teaching, when we see the miracles, it lets us know what the kingdom will ultimately be like. But quickly, let's just kind of make our way very quickly through chapter one, because Mark gives us a few quick snapshots of what this kingdom will look like when the king reigns. And I love the, the, the pace of Mark's gospel because it's immediate, it's instant, it's action. There's all these little things just continuing to go on. But Mark chapter 1, verse 21, after he calls the disciples, and we'll come back to that in a moment, it says he goes into Capernaum, and on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. He begins immediately to teach, but they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught as one who had authority. They had never heard somebody talk like this. In a world of divided opinions of he said this, this rabbi said that, Jesus comes and teaches, and when they heard, they heard the word of truth. In a, word of, in a world of uncertainty and fog, earlier this morning, it was a bit foggy. It was kind of nice. It burned off. But we live in that time, you know, this June, June gloom has kind of hung over into July a bit, which I'm thankful for in all the heat right now. But sometimes we live in that, we kind of live in this foggy world. Things are uncertain. And Jesus speaks a word. It's a word of truth and clarity. It's a word of authority. When the king comes, there's no uncertainty. There's no ambiguity. There's absolute clarity. There's authority. But he goes on, and as he's teaching, they're in the synagogue, they're in church, what happens? It says in verse 23, and immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, a demonic spirit, who was oppressed, who was demonized, and cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Jesus says, 25, be silent and come out of him. In that moment, Jesus sees a man who is in bondage, who has believed the lies of the enemy. And we don't know how or what happened, but for some reason, he's demonized. An unclean spirit has attached and attacked this man. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's no unclean spirit. In my kingdom, no child of God is bound. No child of God is deceived. And he sends that, that unclean spirit out, and that man is free. That's what his kingdom looks like, not bound by addiction and all the lies and deceits of the enemy the demonic strongholds that, that so affect so many people. Verse 29, it says, immediately he left the synagogue and he entered the house of Simon and Andrew or Peter. He goes into Peter's mother-in-law's house and she was sick with a fever, verse 30, and immediately they told him about her and he came and took her by the hand and he lifted her up and the fever left. Jesus says, in my kingdom, there's no sickness. In my kingdom, fevers don't exist. In my kingdom, sickness is a result of the fall of the curse. In my kingdom, that, that, that's not going to stay. In the kingdom of God, there's no COVID-19. 
In the kingdom of God, there's not all these other diseases and all these other things. And we see Jesus constantly touching. There's no blindness. There's no lameness. There's no paralysis. There's no this. Jesus constantly says, that doesn't belong in my kingdom. Get out, get out. Verse 32, it says, all who were sick or oppressed by demons were brought to Jesus and he healed and delivered them all. Verses 35 through 39 talk about Jesus rising early in the morning and praying. And we'll talk about that next week, the, the, the patterns and rhythms of the prayer life of Jesus, Jesus preaching and proclaiming the word. Verse 40, it says this, and a leper came to him imploring him and kneeling and said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Listen, to the original forced social distancer. The lepers were those who had to be not just six feet, not just wear a mask. No, you had to be like as far away from society as possible. A leper comes and says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus says, I am willing, be clean. But more than that, it says he touched him. To the social outcast, to the physically infirmed and sick, Jesus not only heals, but he brings near, he touches him. The Old Testament is full of exhortations. Don't touch, don't come near, unclean. And yet Jesus comes when the king is there, because of what he comes to do, he makes things clean. He brings people in and he's constantly touching. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what happens when the king is ruling and reigning. Listen, it's a kingdom of power. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom of mercy. It's a kingdom of healing. It's a kingdom of justice, of passion and power and compassion. It's a kingdom where he partners with people, and we'll see that in just a moment, where he says, James, John, Simon, and Andrew, come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you like those who are able to, just like you are going to be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. I'm going to train you to be those who recognize the schemes of the enemy and see where he's working and see what he's doing, but more than that, have the power of God given and working to see people set free. You see, oftentimes we, we think of the gospel. Let me pause real quick, and then I'll come back to this. As we talk about the kingdom, as we talk about this, our hearts yearn for this. As believers, we say, yes. I want us to think about this just for a moment. When we, when we hear the cries that's going on in our, in our current country and really the world right now, some of it is certainly mixed. There's a lot of different players involved. And listen, as believers, we have to use discernment. We have to know what is being said and who's saying what. But there is a thread in there that is actually pure, but it's kind of messed up. You see what there's a cry for? There is a cry legitimately for justice, for equality. Those are good things. Those are God things. But here's what they want. They want, they don't realize, they won't say this, but what they're desiring is the kingdom. What they cry for, what the human heart is longing for is the kingdom. The problem is they want it without the king. That's the thing. They, they want the kingdom. You and I want the same thing. We want all these things, but they think they can have it without the king. And we know that's not possible. You can't have all these things that they're clamoring for, that they're fighting for, they're protesting for. And again, it's mixed. I'm not saying, but there's this thread of like what they're after is a kingdom, but sadly it's out the king. And the kingdom can only come when the king is ruling and reigning. Here's the thing, though. When we think about this gospel, Jesus says, this is the gospel. Believe in this. This is so much more than simply how we go from down here to up there. Okay, follow, follow with me here. Because for years, I simply, simply thought of the gospel as, oh, this is what I need to do. If I believe Jesus, I, I, I believe in him, then when I die, I'll go to heaven. And we simply think of it like, uh, this is my get out of jail free. Here's my ticket. You know, my, this is my fire insurance. I, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. And that's the gospel. And I believe this. And for some people, that's all that it ever is. 
How do I go from down here to up there? Good. Listen, that is a very important question that we must settle. But when Jesus gives us this vision, it's so much more than that. It's not how to go from down there to up there. It's how up there comes down here. That's what it's about. It's about how do the people of God say yes to this vision and say, God, I want your kingdom to rule and reign in my family, in my city, in San Diego, in Sacramento. Oh, God, please, in Sacramento, in, in D.C. Like, that's what it's about. How does justice, how does peace, how does healing break forth? How, that's what the gospel of the kingdom's about. That's what this vision that he declares is coming, and he invites us in to be a part of that. Do you understand? So it's not just, how do I go from down here to up there? What happens when I die? Oh, we need to answer that question. But every day, man, how does his kingdom break forth every day in my life? Is it breaking forth? Am I really, am I really having this vision? Is this what my horizon looks like? Or is it my own king, my own kingdoms, my own effective will? Or is it really his will? So how do we... How do we make his vision our vision? We, we see what it is at the kingdom of God. We see briefly, we just saw what does it look like when the kingdom comes, but how do we make his king, kingdom, his vision, our vision? Three things that we'll see here, three, three words. It's in your notes. Jesus says, what do we do? We repent and believe in the gospel. It's not try harder, do more, promise more. No, we repent and we believe what he has done and finally, it says, follow. He invites his men, he invites us, follow me. Repent, believe, and follow. Repent, believe, and follow. Repentance is a word that is so important. For some of us, we have different ideas of what repentance is. We think repentance, and not about you, but sometimes we think the crazy guy in Times Square with the sandwich board, repent, with the megaphone, he's got like dreadlocks and a wild beard. We, we think of it as an oppressive word. Listen, no, repentance is beautiful. Repentance is a gift of God. Literally, the word just simply in Greek is metanoia. It's to, it's to have a change of mind. It means you were thinking one way, and now you're thinking a completely different way. Previously, I was thinking about my kingdom, this kingdom, this way, this way. And all of a sudden, you realize, no, there is a real king with a real kingdom. There's a real way, and I'm going to align myself with that. So it's a change of mind, which leads, listen, to a change of direction, to change of what you do, what you feel, what you desire. It's a completely different way of life. And you believe, you have faith, and that changes. And ultimately, you follow. And I used to think that this was simply what you did to get into the kingdom. And this certainly is what you do to get into the kingdom. That, that kairos moment that all of us had to anybody who really comes to faith in Jesus, we've all had that kairos, that divine appointment. Where, where the gospel is shared, and maybe it was in a setting like this. Maybe it was at a, you know, a big event like Billy Graham or, or Greg Laurie or something. Or maybe it was a friend. Or maybe it was just at a moment of desperation. But that Kairos moment where God meets you, where you say yes to him, where you realize, no, it's about Jesus, that he's my Savior, he's my Lord, and you say yes. And that Kairos moment where your heart's beating, where your mind's racing, where God's speaking to you. And some of you are going, God speak to you? Yes, God speaks to you. It's that still small voice that says, I, you need me. Open your heart. I want to change you. But listen, that, that moment happens at salvation. But here's what I want to tell you. This, this pattern of repent, believe, and follow is the one that we do every single day. So how do we come into it? It's repent, believe, and follow. How do we advance? Repent, believe, and follow. Repeat. So what do you do on day one? Repent, believe, and follow. What do you do on day 365? Repent, believe, and follow. What do you do on 10,580? Repent, believe, and follow. 
That's what we do every day. Every day you, you read the scripture, every day you come to a sermon, you should have your mind renewed. And you're like, oh, wait, I was thinking this way. I'm being renewed. Now I'm thinking this way. This week, as I was looking at the scriptures and meditating on this, I was thinking, reading through chapter one, and going, man, this is amazing. But I realized there's some repentance that had to take place because I realized I'm not really living like this. I'm not seeing this in my life. Not to the degree that I believe Jesus wants to have happen in my life and those around me. So Lord, I repent. Help my mind and my life to be in alignment with yours. Martin Luther, when he kicked off the Reformation, that German monk, he nailed what was called the 95 Thesis to the door of that church in Germany. The very first thesis said this, when, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he meant that as a way of living in the world every day. It wasn't just a one-time thing. What does that mean? It's, it should be the continual process of our lives where we're repenting, where we're saying, Lord, I, 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 I thought this way. Well, I see there's so much more you have. You see, repentance is a good thing. It's a gift. We believe, we trust, and then we follow Listen, I want to land on this last part about following. What does this mean? Because there's a little bit more I want to just drive home because it's really powerful. Jesus makes this declaration and immediately he, he invites the first four disciples. And it says immediately. That's the word that Mark uses. Immediately, immediately, suddenly, right away. He makes this declaration, this invitation, and they respond, drop their nets and follow. But he says, he says something very powerful. And he says this, when his vision comes, his vision, follow me, means intimacy. I will make you become transformation. Fishers of men commission. To say yes to this vision, to say yes to following him brings real intimacy, real relationship. That's what it's about. It brings transformation. It means your life will never be the same. And ultimately, it means that you have a commission. You have a purpose. Jesus says, follow me. When he makes this vision statement, he invites us and he doesn't simply say, now here's the rules, study hard. Here's the way he says, no, you, you follow me. You hear my voice. And literally, physically, that's what the disciples did. And that's a picture for all of us 2,000 years later, like Peter, James, and John, we're to follow him every day of our life. You know, we eat with them, sleep with them. It's like, it's having a, a relationship with him. Listening to what he says, learning to hear his voice. What, did he do? what does he do? How does he work? The rhythms of life and prayer and solitude and Sabbath and all these things. It's about a relationship. Listen, Jesus does not promise you an easy life, but he promises you an easy yoke. He says, take my yoke upon you, for it is easy and my burden is light. You see, to follow him means we do life with him. That yoke was that instrument that was placed upon oxen or donkey, the beasts of burden. We're yoked with the Lord, side by side, going through life together. That's what it means to follow me. But it's also a vision of transformation. He says, follow me and I will make you to become. It's not an instantaneous thing, but as we follow him, our lives are continually changed. As we go on this journey, this process begins where Jesus says, don't turn to the left or to the right. You obey my voice. You obey my teaching. You obey me. The parts that you know and understand, you obey. The parts that you don't understand and you're not sure you agree with, you obey anyway. And then eventually you realize he was right all along. <laughs> but as you do this, we become. We're changed. We're transformed. Finally, into what? To fishers of men. And that phrase, fishers of men, was something that was used in that time. It was a common description that philosophers and teachers used. They would talk about baiting the hook and catching disciples. 
And when Jesus chose the very first disciples, he didn't choose the philosophers. He didn't go to the best yeshivas and the seminaries of the day. He chose fishermen and we know tax collectors. He chose men, he chose women. And he said, follow, follow me. You see, Jesus' vision, and I'll end with this, is so much better than we could ever imagine. Jesus' vision does not just extend God's kingdom. It also expands the possibilities for your life. When we say yes to the vision of Jesus, we are also saying yes to expanded possibilities. Why do I bring this up? Because here's the big lie that so many of us have believed and still believe. We're afraid to say yes. Because again, that whole idea of the kingdom and our effective will, we want our will. We're, we're afraid to say yes because we think by saying yes, it will close down opportunities. We think if we say yes to the call of God on our lives, that means we won't get to do what we want to do when we think we know what's best. Listen, when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to his vision, your world goes from, like, from, from here to here. It gets so much bigger. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and everything else gets added. And all these other things, all the other things you worry about, they'll be added. I love what C.S. Lewis said. He says, you seek heaven first and earth gets thrown in. You seek earth first and you get neither. I love what Kent Hughes, a commentator, said this. He was talking about the early disciples. And he says this, following Jesus for the disciples meant an immensely expanded life. The horizon of these fishermen's lives was bound by the margins of Galilee. Well, once in a while, they went down to Jerusalem for a festival. But by and large, they knew little more than the deck of their boat, the currents of the lake, the handful of people in the marketplace. Their conversations consisted of trade talk, local gossip, family affairs, and Galilean politics. In a word, they were remarkably provincial, even to the extent that they had their own telltale accent. You remember when Jesus denied, excuse me, when Peter denied Jesus, they said, I know you, I recognize you, I recognize that accent, you redneck from Galilee. They knew the accent from that small place up in the north. But because they said yes to Jesus, because they embraced his vision of the kingdom, John, that fisherman who left his father's boat, eventually became the bishop of Ephesus, one of the most powerful, influential cities in the empire. Peter eventually goes to Rome. Andrew goes as far as the border of Russia. Thomas to India and on and on. Their hearts were enlarged to take in the whole world. Their minds once focused on very small things, now overflowed with deep thoughts. They became theologians, psychologists, strategists, all because of the gospel. Did their world get smaller by saying yes, no, it got bigger. The only thing that makes us, uh, things get smaller is when we say no. The only thing that makes things smaller is our disobedience. The more we obey, life gets bigger. And I'll end with this quote. Spurgeon says this, and listen, this is Spurgeon, not Osteen, <laughs> and it says this, when Christ calls us by his grace, we ought to remember also what we are, but we also ought to think of what he can make us. It did not seem likely that lowly fishermen would develop into apostles, that men so handy with a net would quite be so at home preaching sermons and instructing converts. One would have said this could never be. You cannot make founders of churches out of peasants. And yet that is exactly what Christ did. 
And when we are brought low in the sight of God by a sense of our own unworthiness, we may feel encouraged to follow Jesus because of what he can make us. Come follow Christ for the sake of what he can make you. That's Spurgeon. That's amazing. Don't believe the lie that by saying yes, your world gets smaller, that you somehow will become anti-intellectual. No, anything, that's, that's the furthest from the truth. The kingdom of God is at hand and it is advancing. You're invited to come. The only thing that will shrink and, and minimize is you're saying no. Your disobedience limits the possibilities that God has for your life. This call is not simply for the pastors and the apostles and the evangelists. No, we looked at last week when Ray was teaching about the day of Pentecost when the Spirit came. It fell on 120, not just the 11. It wasn't, oh, Peter, James, and John, they got the Spirit because they really needed it. No, all 120 got it, right? Do we know all their names? No, but they all needed the Spirit, right? Because they all had a job. What I want to say to you today is every single person here, you have a commission, you have a purpose, you have an assignment in the kingdom of God. It's why, one of the reasons why I'm so excited about Growth Track, you know, kind of coming back online is because Growth Track isn't about, you know, plugging people into different places here, just getting more volunteers. Oh, it's part of that. But it's getting people to realize you have a kingdom call, you have an assignment, and we want to help you find that. It could be as a lawyer, it could be as a teacher, it could be as a pharmacist, as a doctor, it could be as a pastor, it could be as a teacher. But the fact is, every single one of us have this same commission to be fishers of men no matter where we go, no matter what we do. And all of us need the same spirit of God that was on Peter, James, and John. It's also on the other 120 that were in that room. It's it's available to us. I, I close with this challenge. What's the vision of your life? What way are you following? Because the fact is, whether you realize it or not, there's a way that you are following. There's somebody's way that you have adopted. And maybe it's a hybrid of ways. Maybe you think, well, I'll take a little of this, a little bit of that. It's still your own way. It seems right, but it will end in destruction. But the vision of Jesus is the only vision that's horizon is so big that no matter where you look, his kingdom is coming and will be established. It's really the only thing that will ever make sense in your life. It'll the only thing I really ever answer those four questions. How did I come into being? Why am I here? What's right from wrong? What happens? It's the way of Jesus. It's the vision. It's the kingdom of God. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.